Well, good evening. One more time, good evening. Much better. You can turn with me in your Bibles now to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And I'm not sure exactly how much we'll get through this evening, but we're on the subject of submission in Christ. Submission in Christ. We've talked about a number of things, but being submitted to one another is tonight's topic. We're going to see that Peter wants us to understand what that means to be submitting to one another. I think when we hear the word submit, we right away think of words that it just doesn't bring a good connotation to say submit. Most people hear that word and, they, and they're like, oh, submit, I don't, I don't want to do that. But if we really understand that from a biblical perspective, we'll understand that love is, in many ways, submitting to one another. And so this evening we're going to look at uh, at least a few verses, but we'll start in verse 8. Before we do, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, I pray that you just give us understanding this evening. I pray that you'd help me to just share your word. Uh, Let us make the most of this time in your word, and may we come away from this study uh, feeling as if you've spoken to our hearts and directed us individually and as a body to love one another. We pray for your Spirit's power to be able to do that and your word to be implanted in our hearts, that when given the opportunity to honor you in this way, we would be able to do it to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by just looking at verse 8. And again, the topic is submitting to each other. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. I'm going to read a little bit more. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, I'm just going to stop there and just get the whole context, but I want to look specifically at verse 8. There are three things in this section, and the first is this, to love one another. Notice it starts out by saying, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. But all of these descriptions really are descriptions as to how we can love one another. And to submit to one another is to love one another. That is to put someone above yourself, esteeming one another higher than yourselves, as Paul writes in uh, Philippians. But to love one another is, is, is five things, as Peter describes it. And the first is this, to be united. There are many scriptures that talk about unity. But as we read it here, it says it clearly. Live in harmony with one another. Are you getting the impression that the devil doesn't like it when we live in harmony with one another? He seems to really love to get Christians to go at it, or if not Christians, to get Muslims and Christians and Christians and Jews and all types of different people, atheists, leftists, liberals, conservatives. He seems to love it, that is the devil, when people are at each other's throats. And yet we're told here, we're supposed to be an example in the church. All of you, though, really, all of us, live in harmony with one another. And how do we do that? Well, this requires making every effort to be like-minded with other Christian brothers and sisters. We're not going to agree about everything. But we should be making every effort to try to agree. You know, you've heard it before. You can disagree and not be disagreeable, right? I think a lot of people just enjoy being disagreeable. 
I've met people over the years, and as a pastor, listen, I know God's word because I make my life study God's word. And all of my studies, I've never come away from a study in a passage feeling, boy, I can't wait to find somebody that disagrees with me so I can get into an argument about it. That's never been my response. And yet, I, as a pastor, people have received emails. It doesn't happen that often. But emails or someone will come up to me, and it's like they'll quote a scripture, and it's all about, like, well, what do you say to that? You know, it's like, let's get into an argument about this. Or it's just cantankerous and contentious. Personally, brothers and sisters, we're not always going to agree. I don't expect to agree with everyone or anyone all the time. But why would you come away from studying God's Word with an attitude of doing anything but living in harmony with your brothers and sisters? Yeah, I always sort of wince when someone comes up to me and it's like they quote that scripture that you know is designed, the way they're quoting it, the, the argument is designed to cause problems and strife. Why would you do that? Our heart should be to make every effort to be like-minded with other Christian brothers and sisters. There's so much we can agree about, right? I mean, I'm going to go a step further. I don't look to get into arguments with people that aren't Christians. You know, I I don't set out and say, well, I know this person I work with when I was in the corporate world. Oh, I know that they're a Muslim, or I know that they're a Jew, or I know that they're an atheist, so I'm going to say something to provoke them. That's not to be our hearts. Christ didn't live that way. We shouldn't live that way. And it requires putting aside our petty differences and disagreements for the sake of unity. And I'm talking about petty things. Okay? I'm not talking about whether Christ is God or the Holy Spirit is God or the Trinity. I'm talking about the things that truly do not matter. And even if we disagree, the way we disagree, we can do it in love. Amen? And so that's the first thing, to be united. And we've got to make an effort because the world is anything but united. It's fractured, again, by the devil, by design, to cause problems in our society. And it's crazy what's going on in our world right now. I wouldn't want to be living in Minneapolis right now. It's, it's, it's one thing happens, no matter how horrible, and the knee-jerk reaction of our society today is burn things down, kill people, destroy things. Who do you think is behind that? I don't have to wonder. The destroyer, the devil himself, is the one that takes these things, if we let him, and tear us apart as a society. We in the church, we can show the world what it means to live in harmony with one another. But we go a step further, to be sympathetic. Sympathetic. Now, to be sympathetic doesn't mean you have to understand by experience what someone's going through. But it says, be sympathetic. And what that really means is identifying ourselves with our Christian brothers and sisters when they're suffering. So maybe, maybe you've never had to go through a health crisis. But when your brother or your sister is going through a health crisis, you can be sympathetic. Now, if you've gone through it, you can be empathetic. But you can be sympathetic. That is, you know, I remember there was one time there was a sister in the church, and, and I get a lot of emails of things that people are going through. And a couple weeks earlier... I had realized, uh, well, I had heard that this person had a family member that passed away. And I hadn't seen the person for several weeks since this took place. But as, as I was coming back in the sanctuary, I you know, ran over to the men's room in between the fellowship time. And as I was coming back, I saw the person, and I had a big smile on my face because I was happy to see them. And all of a sudden, in, in a nanosecond, in a split second, I realized, oh, that's right. This person is suffering. They've lost someone they love. 
And I can only imagine my face must have went, it must have changed instantly. But I was being sympathetic because I cared enough to, you know, listen, not that people don't like it when you smile at them, even if they're grieving. But to be sympathetic is to take a moment and get outside of yourself. You may be having a great life and a great day, but wait a minute, this person's hurting. And so as Paul says, you become all things to all men. You weep with those who are weeping. You rejoice with those who are rejoicing. It doesn't mean you're being phony. It means you enter into someone else's pain or joy. And that's what the word sympathetic means. It requires forgetting ourselves and feeling the same way that they feel when they're hurting, specifically when they're hurting. And that's what it means to be sympathetic. And then he goes a step further, and I love this because it's pretty clear. He says, love is brothers. Now, you know this. There are many different types of love. There's the romantic love, which isn't really talked about too much in the Bible, a little bit uh, in terms of the negative side of it, in terms of lust, but the physical love. Um, but there's also the really the two loves that are really talked about in the Bible are loving each other as brothers and sisters and loving as God loves. And we use those Greek words, okay, phileo, where we get the word Philadelphia from, and agape. And agape is God's love. You can love someone you don't like with agape love. But that brotherly love is really liking somebody, having a, a great relationship with them. And we're told here to love as brothers. And that's exactly what it means, to love with a very relational love. It's not necessarily an unconditional love, but it's a sincere love that, that loves his brothers. It's, it's loving someone for who they are and as they are. And it requires loving our Christian brothers and sisters as family members. Now, you don't always, always like everything your family members say or do. Parents have their moments with their children. Okay? Children have their moments with their parents. And siblings have their moments. But at the end of the day, there's something that binds us. And it's phileo love. It's that brotherly love, sisterly love. That's the love we're talking about. And we're supposed to be this way in the church. God calls us, Peter calls us, to be loving. It requires caring for others, our brothers and sisters, as we would care for any member of our own family when they're in need. Now, I like this because we were really just talking about this on Sunday. As we looked in Acts chapter 2 at the description of the early church and the dynamic of the church, the devotion of the church, we were looking at these things, and, and a lot of it came down to just the fellowship, the, the interaction between us and how we love each other and care for each other. And on Sunday, I challenged uh, all of us, I, you know, the Word challenged us, when people come in the back door, they should be so drawn by the way we love each other that at a minimum, even if they're not seeking God, they should say, you know, there's something going on here that I'm interested in. You know, have you ever visited someone's home where there's, in a family, let's say, where there's just such love between the parents and the kids and the siblings? You don't want to leave, do you? You go, oh, man, I wish my family was like this. That's how people should experience the love of Christ when they come into our fellowship. They should be like, you know what? I don't know about this God thing, but I'm willing to check it out because these people are real. They're loving. They're loving. And that's what Peter wants us to understand. Okay, another word. This is a very interesting word. It's different than sympathetic. It's be compassionate. We have all of these imperatives here, these commands. Be compassionate. Now, this requires caring for our Christian brothers and sisters with a tender heart. 
a tender heart. It means our heart towards people is soft. Have you ever had a hardened heart where, you know, your, your, your heart is just, and it happens to me, you know, it does. It happens to me many times and with certain people. I'm like, oh boy, here we go again. Your heart isn't even open because this person, you know, they, they have a history of being either annoying or starting trouble or not listening. And so your heart is closed. God doesn't want us to be like that. We need to be compassionate toward people. Even when people kind of consistently fail, we're supposed to still show compassion, feeling. It means having feeling. And I think being sympathetic is making an effort, and that may not mean feeling. That may mean just responding. But compassion means letting your heart go, feeling and caring about someone in an emotional way. It requires caring for our Christian brothers and sisters with a tender heart, an open heart not a closed heart. And I'm constantly checking my heart when I deal with people because, you know, I know this is true. I can close my heart to someone. And I don't want to do that. And Peter wants us to keep our hearts open in compassion. Requires showing pity on them when they're going through difficult circumstances. One of the things I ask the Lord to help me with is sometimes, you know, and maybe I'm just being honest about this, but maybe you experience the same thing. There's somebody that always gets in their own way. They always make the same mistake. They cause all of these problems for themselves. And they come up to you and you go, here we go again. What's going on? And you don't have any compassion. You're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And you may not even say it that way. Okay, you got fired. Yeah, you didn't show up on time. This is the 10th time you lost your your job. And, And you know what happens? You start to become calloused. God doesn't want us to be calloused. It doesn't mean we're not wise, but we have to show compassion to people like that because that's how Jesus deals with us. To be compassionate isn't always easy, but let's ask the Lord to help us. And then finally, and this will help you with all of the above, be humble. Notice what it says, and humble. Be compassionate and humble. And being humble isn't something you can say, I'm going to be really humble today. In fact, I'm going to be so humble, people are going to say, wow, look at that guy, how humble he is. That, that's not, it, it, it's just an attitude of being friendly, being courteous with other Christian brothers and sisters, not making it all about you, requires showing kindness to them regardless of their disposition. I have a hard time with negative people. I'm not an idealistic person, but I'm not a pessimistic person. I try to be realistic, but I'd rather be optimistic. I'd rather be positive. I I try to take a positive spin on things because nobody needs a Debbie Downer. Nobody needs somebody coming in and saying, well, that's great, but you know, the world is coming to an end. You know, oh, that's great. Things are going great at the church, but you know North Korea is going to attack and we're all going to get destroyed. It's like... Listen, I don't want to be that kind of person, but when I interact with people who have that very negative disposition, I ask the Lord to help me to be humble, to be compassionate, to be all of these things when dealing with them, because honestly, I want to help them. I want to point them to God. I want to point them to Jesus Christ. Amen? So this is one way that we, well, several ways, that we love one another. But there's a second part, and we've read it already. We not only love one another, because that's kind of our character. Now we talk about the action step. And love really is a verb. It, It takes action. If it doesn't take action, then can you really say it's love? 
We want to bless one another as well. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. This has everything to do with blessing one another, and it starts in this way. How do you bless someone else? By not retaliating. Even if you don't say anything nice, just not saying something wicked or wrong or mean. That's, that's your start. You start by just not retaliating. It requires refusing the opportunity to get even with someone that has wronged you. That's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, who doesn't, I mean, maybe because I'm fleshly, who doesn't enjoy getting even when somebody goes out of their way to hurt you? Most of us, most of us, if we're honest, our flesh enjoys that. You know, there are are rare moments of justice in the universe where, like, I'll be driving down the highway and someone will cut me off, show me one of their fingers and do something, and then they zoom past me, and then, you know, a couple minutes later I'm driving and a police officer has pulled them over, and in that moment I'm cheering in my car. Yes, finally, there is justice in the universe. But you see, that's the problem, is that that attitude, that desire to retaliate, Peter says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Now, you know, you may be in your car by yourself and whatever's going on in your own heart before God is one thing. But when someone calls you a name and you return that insult, or something, someone does something to you and you do that in return, at that point, you're not loving, you're, you're not blessing, you're doing the opposite, you're cursing someone. This requires, ooh, this is so hard, this requires silently suffering the abuse of others without offering a barbed response. I'm very good at barbed responses. And you know, that's just not how we need to be as Christians. Instead, we should be a blessing It requires recognizing that as Christians, we are actually called by God to be a blessing to others. Was there ever a moment where Jesus was not a blessing to someone? Everyone he interacted with, a blessing. Always. And that's our goal. So when it says, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing, understand God wants us to be blessed. And when you trade insult for insult, or repay evil for evil, not only don't you bless the person, you also are not blessed, because that kind of behavior will steal your blessing. Better to suffer for doing wrong. We'll see that as we go further into this chapter. We must respond to criticism and negativity with praise and positivity, and it's not always easy. It requires recognizing that as Christians, we are called by God to be a blessing to others. And we must use polished language in response to inappropriate speech. It's really hard. When someone says something that just really motivates you to want to take their head off, you have to do the opposite of what your flesh wants you to do. And we ask God to help us with that because we need his power to do it. And that's really, really, really hard. It requires recognizing that God's blessings are actually withheld from us if we refuse to bless others. Did you hear what I said? God's blessings are actually withheld from us if we refuse to bless others. Don't say, oh God, bless me. Then you have an opportunity to bless someone who might even be nasty, and you don't. And then you say, but God, bless me. 
No, the blessing is in blessing that other person. And that's what we're called to. God makes that clear as he speaks through Peter. Finally, after we've talked about loving one another, blessing one another, we now talk about fearing the Lord. This should probably have come first, because by fearing God, that motivates you to love one another and bless one another. Fearing God, revering God, honoring God with our lives. Notice what it says here in verses 10 through 12. Four, and now he begins to quote uh, from Psalm 34, uh, verses 12 through 16. Four, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if you do evil toward the person that deserves it, the face of the Lord is against you. How can you be blessed? And what we want to do here is fear the Lord. So we're really not treating that person the way they deserve We're treating them better than they deserve. Why? Because we know God treats us better than we deserve. And if you want to honor the Lord, fear the Lord. And by fearing the Lord, it means that you're treating people the way he would treat them if he were here right now. You know he's watching. You know he sees all things. How are you going to treat that person so miserably and then turn around and say, Oh, God bless me. Can't do it. Can't do it. It can't be done. That is inconsistent with a profession of faith. And I'm not saying it's easy because it's not easy. It's a real challenge, actually. So how do you do that? Well, first, you watch the things you say. We talked about this when we studied James. Notice it says here, whoever would, see, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. So it starts, I think, if you can learn to, to pause before you respond with your mouth, if you can learn to just like tell yourself, okay, I'm going to pause for three seconds before I say anything, you would be so much better off. I would be so much better off. We need to watch the things that we say. It requires recognizing that retaliation and deception, that is not telling the truth, are in fact sinful speech. It's sinful speech. You can sin with your mouth, and notice he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech, and you'll be blessed for it. It requires recognizing that our quality of life is directly affected by what we say. If you're constantly mouthing off to people, Your life is going to be filled with strife. People are not going to like you, and for some good reason. If you're the kind of person that every time you open up your mouth, there's a fight, you're a troublemaker, not a peacemaker. And he says here, whoever would love life and see good days. So if you don't do these things, you're not going to love life, and you're going to see a lot of bad days. And listen, we don't need any more bad days. Okay, so that's a good thing if we take that to heart. But not only watch the things you say, watch the things you do. And I I think this is a really important thing. Just like pausing three seconds before you say something, maybe pause a minute before you do something. Maybe that's a good way to approach it. Notice he says, he must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. And that means you really need to watch the things you do. This requires that we uh, recognize that we have a choice. You know, you and I, we have a choice to do what is right or to do what is wrong. Oh, I couldn't help myself. That's not true. You chose to do the wrong thing. It made you feel better in your flesh. But you chose to do the wrong thing. You and I, we all have a choice as to what we'll do and how we'll respond to people. 
And it's one thing to respond to people who are nice. That, that, that's kind of a given. I think we can do that pretty well. Someone's nice, you respond in a nice way to them. But when someone's not so nice, that's when the challenge comes. And it requires accepting the challenge to be a peacemaker and not a troublemaker. You can only be one or the other, a peacemaker or a troublemaker. Wherever you go, do you make peace or do you make trouble? Because it's one or the other, and we're called to be peacemakers. And what's the motivation? Well, the motivation should be to to want to be like Christ. But if you need a little bit more, know that the Lord is watching you. Know that God is watching you. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's not so much, well, the Lord's against them because they're evil. No, if you do evil, the Lord's against you. That is against your behavior, the attitude of your heart. You've really made yourself an enemy of God by making trouble and doing evil. So you don't do that. It requires being consciously aware that you are constantly in God's presence. He sees every righteous thing that we do. He hears every faithful prayer that we pray. That's what we learn here. It requires being frightfully aware that you and I, we will finally answer to God. So this is the attitude of submitting to one another. It requires us doing several things, which we've read. And at this point, the, the, the book begins to take a transition, and it's not a hard transition. It's not like we suddenly move to the next topic. We move from the subject of submission in Christ to suffering in Christ. And it happens slowly over the next few verses, and we'll be talking through the rest of our studies in First Peter about suffering in Christ. But as we've been talking about submitting to each other and dealing with difficult circumstances and difficult people and sometimes having to suffer, you know, sometimes having to suffer the way people treat us and not responding, Peter now sort of logically and gradually transitions into being willing to suffer for doing good. You have to be willing to suffer for doing good. That is, you do good even if it costs you. It's not easy. I think most of us have sort of a mantra, which is like, I'll be good, but you you mess with me, I'm messing with you. You know, we're going to have a problem if you mess with me. If you're willing to suffer as a Christian for suffering in Christ, if you're willing to do that, then you're going to recognize that God is going to call you in moments when you're dealing with these types of people to do the right thing and to suffer for doing it. To do the right thing or say the right thing And maybe have people not like you very much because you're doing the right thing. I used to tell this story many years ago. I haven't told it in a while, but there was a woman. Her name was Gloria Turtle. I remember her name. She used to sit at the front desk at the company that I worked at. And I'm sure she's passed on to wherever eternity is for her right now. But I can tell you something. Every time I came in the morning, I had to walk past her desk. And I would say, good morning. And she was one of those people who would always say, what's so good about it? She looked for an opportunity to like turn the day upside down every single time. She was a very unhappy person. That much was obvious. One day I just came in. I didn't even get a chance to say good morning. And and I was smiling. And she goes, what are you smiling about? I mean, that's the kind of person this was. And every time I just asked, Lord, just, just help me to be positive and loving and you know, it was a challenge. You're walking in the office on Monday morning and this person's just, that's the way she was. And she was like that for a long time. And, and I don't know what happened. She had a lot of health problems, which usually comes with someone who is unhappy. You kind of tear your body up from the inside. It's sad. 
So I was just sort of willing to take it on the chin every time I came and knowing that my smile might aggravate her, my good morning might aggravate her. I, I wanted to, I never did, but I wanted to come in. Isn't it a miserable day, Gloria? Just to see what would happen. But I didn't, because that wouldn't have been nice. She probably would have just stared at me like, who is that? Listen, we have to submit to Christ's authority when we're suffering. We have to submit to Christ's authority when we're suffering and be willing to suffer for doing the right thing. And that's hard. Christ suffered, all of his suffering suffered more than anyone that ever lived for doing exactly what his father had called him to do. And he never sinned. He never did anything wrong. And everything he did, he did for everyone else. And he suffered more than anyone who ever lived. So listen, when we suffer for doing good, just accept that as a part of being a Christian. Hope it doesn't happen that often, but when it does, accept it. And that's what it means, one of the things we'll see as we go through the rest of this book, to suffer in Christ. Now, first it starts, excuse me, starts with always doing good to others. We've talked a little bit about that. Like I said, we're transitioning into this new section of the book. Look at verses 13 through 14. It's a really logical argument. <clears throat> Who is going to harm you, or even want to harm you? Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. So the idea is this. We're always doing good to others. And the truth is, the most obvious way, I don't think anyone here wants to suffer, right? The most obvious way to avoid suffering is to be zealous to do good to others. If you're good to other people, let me tell you, most people are not going to cause you to suffer. Most people aren't going to make your life more miserable. Most people aren't like the woman I mentioned. Most people, if you're good to people, they respond in kind. Most people, not everyone, and not all the time. But the most obvious way to avoid suffering is to be zealous to do good to others. So let's start there. That's what he means when he says, who's going to harm you if you're, if you're eager to do good? A whole lot of people are going to be like, oh, no, no, you're a nice guy. You know, that's where we start. Most people will not want to harm you if you treat them well. Doing right by others will often cause them to do right by you. You know what I found? If I'm polite, sometimes I get on the phone and I have to call you know, a company, a help desk or something, and sometimes the person gets on and you could just tell that they just don't like their job. And I'm like, hello, good morning, how are you? And then right away their disposition changes, usually. Occasionally I get someone, they got an attitude, and then only, the, more, the nicer I am, the worse they get. And I reach a point in the conversation, because I'm looking for someone to help, where I say, I'm sorry, I'm going to call back. And I hang up, because I want to get somebody that wants to help me. I'm even nice about that. But sometimes what I want to do, just to be honest, is slam the phone down, or before I slam the phone down, say, you know, this is supposed to be a help desk. You should call it a no-help desk. That's not the appropriate response. But these are the things that I'm thinking about. And doing right by others will often cause them to do right by you. So take a shot. Start with a good morning. How are you doing today? You know, when I get someone from the South or the Midwest, it's obvious right away. They're like, yes, sir, how are you? I'm like, oh, my goodness, who is this person? They're not from New Jersey. I'm trying to be more like that. I have a long way to go. But it's a blessing when we do have to suffer for doing the right thing. But boy, my blood pressure goes up. You know, I go, man. I pay these people. This is my bank, and they can't even help me? Like, you know, that's how I get. And I admit, recently, there was, I want to put a stop on a check that they lost, right? 
And then after, after like keeping me on hold for five minutes, not being able to help me, first thing out of the woman's mouth when she gets off a hold is like, you know, I'm going to have to charge you $30. I, I saw red. I said, so I'm supposed to pay you $30 because you lost my check. And I just said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not interested in continuing. So have a good day. And I hung up. But it's like, it's really hard not to like, I mean, really take someone's head off. That's my challenge, okay? Maybe you have that challenge as well. It's really, really hard, and yet, that's a minor way of suffering. These Christians who were living at this time were doing the right things, and people were going out of their way to persecute them. I think about people who are getting canceled. You know, someone puts something on. Now, listen, if you're posting on Instagram and Facebook and all these ungodly platforms, and you get in trouble with the ungodly world, don't come to me. I mean, that's your problem. You should know better, right? But I will tell you this. There are people who've lost their jobs for saying the truth. And I feel badly for them. And, or, or somebody takes a post that they sent and, and, and publishes it, and now the boss calls you in and said, we don't, want people, you don't, we don't want people like you here. You're a racist or you're, you know, you're an evil person. You're wicked, you know. Why? Because I think that there's only two genders. You, you, because I, I testified to an obvious biological fact, and you would rather believe a lie that you made up in your head. You know, I mean that that's the, that's the crazy world we live in today, and it's very likely that as Christians over the next few years we are going to suffer for doing good if you haven't already. So what are you going to do about it? How are you going to handle it? It is actually a blessing. Look what it says here. But even in verse 14, if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. That is by God, not by the person that is causing you suffering. It's a blessing when we do have to suffer for doing the right thing. Because we're like Christ, we're entering into Christ's sufferings. It gives us an opportunity to prove the sincerity of our actions. And it shows that we are completely committed to what we believe in. I'm really disappointed in many Christians today who are all too willing to sort of back down because it might cost them something. I'm not saying we should be cantankerous. I'm not saying we should go out there and cause trouble. But if someone asks me how many genders there are or whether abortion is murder, I know how I'm going to answer the question. You know, I'm not going to go looking for trouble, but I'll tell you what, I, I am looking for truth and I'm looking to preach the truth. I'm not going to hide the truth to protect myself. The, the, the truth is Jesus Christ is Lord, and, and this is his word. And, and, and I'm not going to obscure that. And if it costs me something, well, so be it. I know I'm blessed by God. I have to accept. Again, I'm not looking for suffering, but if it comes my way for doing the right thing, oh, well. Scripture tells me here, Peter tells me I'll be blessed. And I believe we will be blessed if we honor God. Now, we must not allow ourselves to be intimidated into not doing the right thing either. There's a lot of intimidation going on in our world today. And we must not allow ourselves to be intimidated into either doing the wrong thing or not doing the right thing. Look what it says in verse 14. The latter part. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Do you know what the world has done to all of us this last year? Made us afraid to walk around without a mask, made us afraid of our neighbors, made us afraid to come to church, made us afraid to say anything. Oh my goodness, what if you happen to say that blue lives matter? What if you happen to say that all lives matter? God forbid you say white lives matter. 
Again, just because some racist people say those things doesn't mean I'm racist if I say those things. Yes, black lives matter. All lives matter. Every life matters, including the life of the unborn. But nowadays, if you say it a certain way or you don't do this a certain, you know, with certain sensitivity, suddenly you're a racist. Why? Because someone says I'm a racist? I'm not afraid. I'm not a coward. I'm not looking for trouble. But I got news for you. I'm not afraid of what they're afraid of. People not liking me. Oh, well. And I'm not frightened. I never was and I'm not now. Again, I'm not going out of my way to cause problems, but I'm not going to back down just because something might happen or someone may not like what I have to say. Oh, well. Listen, do not be afraid of the threats of those that want to harm us. Do not fear those things that cause other men and women to fear for their lives. It is far better to trust in God than to be afraid of men. You will serve whatever you fear the most. And I fear God more than I fear men. What does Proverbs 29 say? Let's check it out. Proverbs 29 verse 25. This is a good one. And I don't want to mess it up, so I'm just going to read it right from the Scripture. 29, 25. Hope I got it right. Fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man, that is fear of men and women, fear of what they say, fear of what they think, fear of what they might say about you. Fear of man will prove to be a snare. That's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. That's my mantra. <laughs> I'm trusting in the Lord. I'm not afraid of what man will do to me or say about me. Brothers and sisters, that's what Peter wants us to understand. Now, that's always doing good to others. That's the first point. Always doing good to others, regardless of whether it costs you something. You do the right thing. And by the way, telling someone the truth is doing good to them. Lying to them is being deceitful, sinful speech. But not only doing good to others, being true to Christ. That's kind of where we're going with this, being true to Christ. You, you can't be good to others and deny Christ and expect to be blessed or to be a blessing. You have to remain true to Jesus Christ. Look at verses 15 through 16. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, a lot of people will use this verse to, to talk about sharing their faith, but this is actually when someone wants to know what it means to be a Christian, when someone wants to know why you have hope in eternity, you're supposed to very lovingly tell them the truth. Now, you can do one of the two things. You can be super loving and not tell them the truth, right? Or you can be super truthful and not very loving, or I suppose you could do the thing that we're being told to do here, which is to tell them the truth in love. And that's what we need to, to, that's our goal. That's what we're aiming for, to be true to Christ. Dedicate your life to Christ. Serve him faithfully as your Lord and King. Notice it says, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. See, the, the problem right now for, for Christians in the world in which we live in, in our culture, is if you're going to do that, if you're going to be true to Christ, if you're going to always in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord, it's going to cost you something. In this crazy world, 
it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost your friends. It might cost your job. It might cost you popularity. People may not like you anymore online, or they may just not like you at all. But who cares? Who cares? Prepare yourself to respond to those that may question your faith in Christ. People are going to question it. And sometimes they'll actually ask you a question, and then other times they'll just sort of try to shoot holes in what you believe. I had a recent situation where someone was asking me some questions. They were legitimate questions. And I took the time, a couple hours, and I put together my response. And I sent it to them with love and and with truth. And and the goal was to reach them with the truth. I, I don't know if I succeeded, but I did it in a loving way. You do your best. Prepare yourself to respond to those that may question your faith in Christ. Look what it says. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, that doesn't mean somebody asks you a question and then you go and prepare. You know, if you do that on Jeopardy, you're going to lose. You prepare before you go on the show, right? They kind of give you an idea what some of the questions are going to be, and you go and you prepare so you might be able to answer them. Listen, listen. You know what the questions are, and you have the answers. Amen? Prepare yourself to share them. Prepare yourself to share the truth of the Scriptures for anyone who really is willing to listen We must live in a constant state of preparedness to preach God's word. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 4, to preach the word, always preach the word, in season and out season. Just always preach the word, in season and out of season. We must give a sincere answer to those that ask about our hope in Christ. That means you can't water it down. You got to tell them the truth about sin, about hell, about the, the, the truth that Christ died on the cross for our sins, and you have to put your faith in Christ and be forgiven and confess your sins and repent of your sinful life and ask Christ to save you. And then the God, man, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day will come into your heart by faith, and the power of the Spirit will enter your life, and you will be saved as you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead. Amen? not really that complicated, but you got to get that truth out there. We must give a sincere answer. Now, it's interesting because the word answer is apologia. It's where we get the concept of apologetics from. And while apologetics are great and you can study a whole lot about how to answer people, it really shouldn't be that complicated. If you can't answer in very simple terms what you believe and why you believe it from the word of God, taking a college class in apologetics isn't going to change that. In fact, you might just become like annoyingly arrogant about it if you're not careful. In fact, that's why I really like the next verse. <laughs> because, by the way, an apologia is a verbal defense. It's a reasoned statement or argument, and that's good. You should have that. In fact, the word was used to describe a legal defense in court. But we must offer them the very same hope that we've received in Christ. It has to be the truth. But... But, brothers and sisters, we have to respond in the appropriate way so as to correct those that may slander you. Too many Christians, they got the truth, but it's packaged in a bullet which they shoot out of a gun at someone's head. That's not the way we're supposed to share the truth. In fact, notice it says, do this with gentleness and respect. We talked about this recently. We really should respect everyone. Keeping a clear conscience. That is, don't do something you're going to feel bad about later. 
so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. If, if they want to slander you, let them be ashamed of what they say because they should know better because you didn't do anything to deserve that slander. Oh, well, they don't like me. Oh, well, they say mean things about me. I was gentle. I was respectful. I was truthful. I was loving. I was all of the things we talked about. You didn't like it. Your problem's really with God, not with me, and I don't want a problem with you. It's really just that simple. Gentleness means mildness of disposition. A gentleness of spirit, it means meekness. Not a know-it-all. Respect means reverence. Treating people, again, respectfully or reverentially. And not violating your good conscience in order to defend yourself. You know, sometimes when someone gets under our skin, we feel like, oh, I'm going to destroy them in this argument. Listen, That is not at all what we're called to do. You would violate your good conscience by doing that. And when someone slanders us, and we're talking about slander here because sometimes people speak maliciously against the good things we say and do in Christ. And you know what? They should be ashamed of themselves. You don't have to make them ashamed, but they should be ashamed of their slander. What is slander? It's an insult. It's when people treat us abusively. They use us despitefully, they revile us, they accuse us falsely, and they threaten us. They should be ashamed of that behavior, but it's not my place to call them out. It's my place to be loving and truthful. And that's how we're Christ-like. Finally, and as we close, verse 17, it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. If you do the wrong thing and you suffer, man, that's not honoring to God. But if you do the right thing and you suffer, it's better. And that's why we're now on this topic. We've transitioned into suffering in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to close with this thought. Always be willing to suffer for doing good. Saying the right thing, preaching the truth, preaching the word of God, sharing the gospel. Be willing to suffer. Oh, I couldn't say that. I might lose my job. Oh, I couldn't say that. That that person might be offended. No, listen. Always be willing to suffer for doing good. God may call you to suffer for doing good to someone by his sovereign will. Notice, it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. But God will never call you to suffer for doing something that is wrong or contrary to his word. So you may suffer in this life, but be blessed in knowing if you're doing the right thing, if you're honoring God, if you're preaching his word, if you're telling the truth and you're doing it in a loving way and you end up suffering, well, you know what? You'll be blessed because you've just become more like Jesus Christ through your suffering in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great encouragement. As we continue to study your word, give us the strength we need to honor you in our lives, to tell the truth in love, and to share that great and wonderful truth that Jesus Christ came and died to save sinners, that as we put our faith in him, we are saved from our sins, given new life through your resurrection, and we'll spend an eternity with you, not because we deserve it, but because you did all that was necessary to save us from our sins, that we might spend an eternity with you. May we preach that message to as many who will listen. May we do it in love. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.